Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands for a long time after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories, and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day here at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now. Redfern is the birthplace of black theatre in this country. And it's a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show made by people of color, speaking with people of color about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Darren Lasagas. And I'm Sada Khan. Ahead on the show, we'll be hearing an interview between Race Matters producer Sharika Halaludin and producer playwright Shakti Duran. And Shakti is a Western Sydney storyteller and producer who works in theatre, film, music and television, often wielding his Sri Lankan Tamil lineage into the stories he tells. So his debut play, Counting and Cracking, was a hit with audiences at Sydney Festival back in 2019 and went on to win a heap of awards and has just finished touring at festivals overseas. It was a large-scale, unprecedented work that traced the story of Sri Lanka's descent into civil war, as well as a cautionary tale about the politics of division. His next work, The Jungle and the Sea, unfolds into another chapter, travelling back in time to follow the story of a family during the war. So you'll hear from them in conversation later, talking through telling difficult stories as an act of healing, how the current crisis in Sri Lanka impacted the production and the power of creating community-based art that is interested in collaboration over clout, which we are big champions of over here. Clout. Uh, collaboration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. No, We're all yeah. about the bag. <laughs> really, really looking forward to um, hearing from the chat from Sharika Hilludin very soon. Uh, we are back in the studio together after a couple weeks' time. I feel like the last time we were um, sitting here together, we were talking about the whys in terms of art making, mm-hmm. speaking from our um, experiences personally. Sarah, you've had a pretty hectic couple of weeks since then, creatively, I would say. Give us an overlay of what you did and <laughs> what, you, what you took from it. Yeah, it's been a acceleration, I feel, in the last, maybe even the last year. Yeah, everything has accelerated really hard, and which kind of also sparked that convo that we had about your creative why, because, you know, the industry is such a machine. Um, it's hard to keep your feet on the ground and not get, you know, rolled up in um, the chaos of it all. But I did a writer's lab with Netflix and Australians in film a couple of weeks ago, and it was probably my favourite week of this whole year so far. It kind of did to me what we were discussing 
um, on the show previously and that whole, like, there's no real answer to the, you know, how do you find your why? I guess the biggest thing that I kind of took from it was such a beautiful affirmation of, like, your longevity in terms of your mental health and stamina in an industry that does prioritise profit over creativity um, and you can end up being a vending machine. Your creativity can be end up becoming like a vending machine um, for the industry. And the biggest thing that they were saying that we that I kind of gathered from it all was like you really have to trust your gut on things. Like your your voice and what you have to offer is so special. Um, and that's the whole beauty of creativity is that it's all so um, specific and unique because of each individual experience and like protecting that and not allowing it, not, not forcing it to mold for the industry is um, such a, it's, it's such a crucial thing, but it's something that's not really just discussed or um, talked about in a way. Like I, why do you think that is? That's a really, I, that's a great question. Like, why don't we talk about this stuff? I feel like it's not ever a conversation that gets um, had. And I feel like it should be a continual yarn because like our, you know, mental health, creativity, prioritizing self-care before the job, before work. Like even um, when I was doing that week, I was in the middle of writing a first draft and it was a huge first draft that I had to submit. And there was like one, like, so I was doing this lab and then going home and, and writing until nine o'clock and then going straight to sleep. And there was like one point where I was sitting there and I was like, have I spread myself too thin now? And then I was like, actually, no, like I needed this week. Like I needed to be with other creators. The, the special thing about the week as well was that all of us came from varying racial, cultural, sexual and gender identities as well. So it meant that we were, had had similar um, experiences in our journeys leading up to that point too and what we wanted to offer in our creativity and um, you know, we were all a, a big part of it was that we were all coming from communities that we wanted to really that we wanted to empower in storytelling. I needed this hug. I needed this nourishing space. I needed this self care, and that. And then what ended up happening was because of that week, I ended up flogging my first draft over the weekend, got it in even before the deadline, and felt really proud of myself for what I had accomplished. And I felt like I could do that because I had a week like this. Mm. Um, and yeah, it was just a really special experience and I feel like what I kind of gathered from it is that I really want to push um, this more. Like I really like want to push like even like, you know, writers' rooms are so hectic and I'm always like, you know, where's the, where's the space that we have before the writers' rooms where we um, – talk about our anxiety about coming into a writer's room because they're incredibly anxiety-inducing spaces, writer's rooms. Like, I'm always so fearful in a room that I'm going to say the wrong thing, <laughs> that I'm going to, like, have a pitch and they're going to go, that's not it, and now everybody hates me. <laughs> and, like, I've been, I think a big thing that I gathered from that week as well that, like, I've definitely taken into other projects that I'm on right now is that it's, like, it's okay if your ideas don't hit the mark every time like I think this is such a big thing with creativity as well is that we feel like we have to get it right the first mm. time we feel like we are like you know like we're not special if we don't do it if we don't if it doesn't look 
special if it doesn't look um pristine and everything but the fact is is like you're going to have a million shitty ideas before you get to the good one <laughs> um and just alleviating that pressure off yourself i also think a lot of that pressure though that pressure that we put on ourselves stems from um being coming from marginalized communities where it's like we've had to really fight for access to spaces that you kind of have this thing in the back of your head of like am i allowed to be here still like it's like a gaslighting you do to yourself because of the whatever racial um violence you might have experienced previously or whatever it may be and but then at the same time I'm like how do I enter these spaces where I can stay present and humble in my space in my and grounded in my in my community in my creativity but um also not feel impacted by the 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 chaos of the space that I'm in I feel like self-interrogation is so empowering yeah understanding yourself first before entering a space that isn't your own what you're capable of, yeah. what your limits are, are, how far you can push yourself. Yeah. I think the really beautiful thing about this week that I did as well was everybody like in the room, like there was about, there was a fair few of us and everyone was just so kind and generous and the, the, the community vibe in the room was just so strong. And I was like, oh my God, it's been so long since I've been involved in this because I have been in the industry all year running trying to run and keep up with it i've forgotten about this and it was just so like nurturing and it just felt like a giant hug mm. <laughs> um, it's a testament to you know this is the idea of filling your cup you know mm. if you, you need to fill your own cup before you can give anything away you've been trusting your gut in more ways than one mm. recently and uh as with many of the things that we co- i mean we're literally um on a radio show right now and this show has been such an integral part of our lives for what five years yeah um and informs so much of how we think and feel and relate to each other to ourselves to our communities um that i feel like so many cups have been filled and so many cups have been given and i feel like your cups are we're doing the cup song do a big moment do I actually we? thought that was a beautiful segue it was a beautiful segue <laughs> and the segue is what's the segue Darren you tell us so I am leaving race matters uh, the 11th of December will be my final show and off of all of that it's been the best part of my last five years I do not know myself without race matters like I don't know who I would have been without this show um and without this little community that we've built and this team that we have and this um healing space that we've kind of cultivated for ourselves and I hope people that um have engaged with the show as well over the years um but in saying that it's um you know, all good things must find its its end, its natural end. And unfortunately, I um I just don't have the capacity anymore to give the show what it deserves, um, give it the labor that it deserves as well. And 
it's a really I hate I hate stuff like this like I hate it when things have to come to an end like I really struggle to leave things and but then at the same time I was like I you know isn't that the beautiful thing about like things that you really love like letting them come to their natural end like if you know and that's the thing like I love I'm deeply in love with this space that I'm like I have to like like you know in your gut when it's like it's time for it to come Mm. to its end and it's time for really another generation to come in and bring it the um labor that it that it deserves um so yeah in saying that it is like i will be wrapping up with this oh god i feel so shitty right now about this like i hate this i hate that i'm leaving um but it is it's it's actually one of the it's a situation where i'm like i genuinely don't want to leave but it like i I need to leave mm. in order for it to go to for it to c- continue to grow and for my life to continue to grow where it's going right now. Like it's just that crossroads that you come at. But I'm such an indecisive person as well that I'm like, I just want to do it all. Which makes the decisions you make all the more important and all the more more you know potent. You know, mm. these are these are major things you're considering, and you know you haven't taken this decision lightly. Like I feel incredibly grateful to be in a sad but exciting position. Mm. Like, don't, I think like so, so, like particularly if I analyze my own life, I'm like so many things have like left my life in a way where I didn't get to say goodbye to them or close the chapter in a way that made me feel really good. And it's like, I feel like it's such a privilege to be in a position where you can like be sad, but sad, but excited. Mm. Yeah. Which I think has a lot to do with like you and like Sharika and Tanya, like the beautiful cohort that we have here as well. That's, I think, a big reason for it. Sarah just shared with us the news that she would be leaving Race Matters. But never fear because we still have Sarah in our midst, in our orbit for another month. Mm-hmm. And there'll be plenty of stories to share, plenty of shows to reflect on, um, and just lots of giggles to yeah. be had. Not a wholesome moments. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. for the time being, still so much amazing storytelling to be heard here on the show. Earlier this week, Race Matters producer Sharika Heller sat down with creator and playwright S. Shakti Dharan with the upcoming showing of his new work, The Jungle and the Sea. It's a deeply personal interview that traces their shared lineage as displaced Tamil Sri Lankan people and what it is to make art as diasporic people. The Jungle and the Sea itself, it's an epic tale that traces a family's experience as the country descended into civil war. And we begin with Shakti speaking to why he felt it was the right time to share this work and how the current political uprising in his homeland impacted his creative process. You've described your first play, Counting and Cracking, as an honour of those who tried to halt Sri Lanka's descent into civil war, and the upcoming play, The Jungle and the Sea, is written in honour of those who survived the war, upholding dignity even when everything else is falling down around them. Why did it feel like the right moment to tell this story now? 
That's a tricky one to answer because initially the pro play got programmed in 2020 um, and it was going to be on um, soon after counting and cracking. Um, and Eamon and I were really keen for counting and cracking to not be a flash in the pan, but, but instead to be the beginning of something that continued. And being able to do another show the following year felt like a consolidation. Um, and then, you know, that was around the same time we had the first lockdown and the pandemic put an end to that. But funnily enough, it's come around in a really good way because um, Sri Lanka's had a terrible year, you know, a disastrous year with the economic crisis has brought the lives of so many people there to a standstill. But the protests that ensued and the silver lining of that crisis in Sri Lanka has been that the country is more open to change now than it probably ever has been um, since it seceded from the British. And this play comes at a really good time for the diaspora to acknowledge more of the truths of its of our past and let that feed into a conversation that could really change Sri Lanka's future. Um, so in terms of the Sri Lankan community and the relationship with the work with my community, I, I really hope that we can use this play to generate conversation that stops us repeating the mistakes of the past. I couldn't help but think about the ongoing crisis that you've alluded to. Given that you started developing this a little while ago, did the current socio-political moment impact your writing or the play itself? It impacted in a very big way. Part of the play deals with what happened at the end of the war. So much of what happened there in terms of bad behaviour from both sides of the war has still not properly been accounted for. Before this crisis that happened in Sri Lanka, the ability to talk about that was limited um, because the person who um, was in charge for a good part of the activities for the end of the war was also still the president of Sri Lanka. And um, he's now been deposed and there's new leadership in Sri Lanka. The country's ability to talk about what happened at the end of the war um, as a whole is far more open than ever before. And it meant that we, I could kind of change some components of the play to push the conversation further. I want to turn to some of the aspects of the play itself. You have a whole heap of incredible people, both on and off stage from across the globe, helping you bring this to life. Why is it important for you to nurture these relationships as part of your creative process? Counting Cracking was like an infrastructure building project. I didn't know it at the time. I can only kind of see that now with the benefit of hindsight. Um, it took four years to cast Counting Cracking to find people from across South Asia and Australia who kind of have the technical ability, are exceptional actors, can speak necessary languages, sometimes dance or sing as well, um, and to have all of those qualities and yet also at the same time believe in the purpose of these plays, which, you know, they only exist in order to help my community move forward and to help incorporate our story into the greater Australian story. And um, this ensemble really instinctively understands that purpose. And there's a really collaborative process with them because 
we're all united in that without having to talk about it. If every time I did a show, it took four years to cast, it's unsustainable. <laughs> um, and so the fact that County Cracking's built an infrastructure where what's happened with Jungle of the Sea feels like a relative lightning bolt, like a flash, is, is incredible. Um, and I think that is actually systemic change. You know, when the first time around something seems impossible, you have to argue for it for every inch of the way. Um, and it's not until it succeeds that it proves itself. And up until then, everyone says it shouldn't be done. When you go from that scenario to a scenario in which people now think all of that is normal, is wonderful. It, it gives you hope. Um, the other thing that's really cool is so much of what we do is Eurocentric. Like um, even when a group of people of color gather, quite often the context for that is that it's different and they're doing it instead of a group of people who are mostly white gathering. And there's something beautiful about gathering South Asian artists together as the center and as the beginning. It's not like we're not, um, we just don't even think about whiteness. <laughs> it's just not present in the conversation, which I think is lovely. And we're so firm on what our own culture is and what our stories are and we build from there, um, which is wonderfully freeing. Speaking of that kind of shifting in priorities and ways of doing, um, I'm sensing like a lot of different textures in the play, like there's going to be kinetic music and the way that you play with the stage itself and of course um, the use of multiple languages. Um, can you speak more to how you collapse the expectation of form and if there's something political in doing so particularly in theatre? I mean, I guess my first principle at play is to make it accessible. And um, for me, that means not relying on any codes um, of, of theatre history or theatre convention. I'm not relying on having to know them in order to understand the show. Um, and... That sounds simple, but actually it means artists unpacking their assumptions, like because most of the stuff that's based on theatre convention is people inside the industry are so used to it that they don't realise they're doing it. So that's my first principle. And then the second principle is multiple audiences because, um, yes, it's beautiful to be able to make work for the Sri Lanka community. That's a great privilege. Um but placing it inside the context of a show that's for all Australians means that our story gets woven into the Australian story and through being publicly vulnerable with who we are, I think we form a sense of belonging to here through that. And so then the second principle is how to make sure every line reads to both a Sri Lankan and a non-Sri Lankan audience, um, which is, means to, having to be quite meticulous because um, they mean different things, every line, <laughs> depending on who's listening and receiving it. And then my third principle is making sure that it's as entertaining and wonderful as a normal piece of main stage theatre um, because our stories are as deserving of, of that as any other story, you know, as is Shakespeare or a Harry Potter musical. The way to do that, all of those things at once, is to make sure you know what your kind of thematic core is and to keep manifesting it in different ways. So Carnatic music is throughout the show um, and it serves us beautifully culturally because 
we have a very strong connection to that as Tamil Sri Lankans. It's a Tamil um, South Indian art form, and we're connected to that through through a shared language and culture. Um, but we're using the Veena and the Murnangam, which are kind of like these ancient instruments that are still kind of vividly and um, beautifully explored and played today. So just on, just the presence of Carnatic music automatically says that our culture is strong and continuing and that it's an ancient wisdom that still holds value today. But then it's, um, it's an improvised form of music, so it doesn't, um, the way it operates inside theatre is different to how music normally operates inside theatre. It's, it's a character itself in the show and the frameworks for how it works are set out beforehand, but every night it'll be played slightly differently depending on what's happening on stage. We, our system of making music is based on emotion and landscape. And so we have a very sophisticated system for connecting certain musical scales to certain human emotions or certain um, natural landscapes. And so um, it's wonderful. It, it immediately shakes up the form to bring in that music. The other thing we're doing is um, putting everything on a revolve. It was, it was written for a revolve from the very beginning. And the revolve is just a stage that turns. And this stage um, turns very early on in the show within the first kind of couple of minutes and doesn't stop turning till the show finishes. And it's an epic, it's a long show. So this constantly turning stage <clears throat> inserts the presence of fate and history and destiny into the work. Um, and then the bodies on the stage kind of have to work against that. So immediately we're in like a cyclical time construct rather than a linear one. And we have all these kinds of notions of, um, uh, of the gods and fate and destiny that is so much more like, the kind of South Asian epics than like classic Western theatre. So anything that kind of solution that deals with all the principles I said earlier simultaneously is, is a winner. That's, that's the stuff we keep. I wanted to pick up on, I guess, things that you've been talking about, how we choose to tell our stories differently. I don't know what it's like for you, but the war was always referenced in such a veiled and euphemistic way, like it was always the troubles. And there's this tension of something that is quite haunting, but also the necessity to tell a story, to experience healing. Um, I'm curious how you grapple think, um, with these tensions, if at all almost constantly at the forefront of my mind. <laughs> um, one of the most devastating impacts for any community that has sustained violence within it um, beyond 
the physical effects of that violence is the silence that follows. And that silence is um, sometimes a repression of emotion. It's sometimes a silencing of voices because it's easier to deal with the violence by having only one way forward afterwards. And it's quite often a silence between generations. The ones who went through it um, survive it and deal with it by putting it in a bottle and trying never to come back to it. And all of that is rational and makes complete sense. Um, Often the only way to deal with pain is by burying it. The problem with that is that um, it's the most, you're creating the most possible fertile ground for troubles to happen again in the future. And without talking openly about um, how that violence came to be and the effect it had on us on a real level, on a family level, because quite often it's talked about politically and um, you reference little bits here and there, family conversations, and you hear about it in the media or Wikipedia or whatever. But unless you talk about it in a grounded way within family, um, you're not setting up the conditions where you, where you try to avoid that violence in the future. And I think one of the great privileges of being an artist is um, you're able to affect that um, conundrum when nothing else really can. Um, and I think stories are, um, for me, just a way to lay out a lot of complicated and nuanced information um, in a way that is um, suddenly very easy to understand and digest. And in doing that on a practical level, you then create a space on an emotional level where people can fall in love with certain characters, like, you know, hopefully fall in love with the family at the centre of this show and then go through with them what they go through. If you're part of a minority group that suffered um, during the war, then this hopefully gives you this space over the time of the show to confront that trauma on your own terms and start the process of healing. And if you're from a group which saw that violence and wasn't touched by it, it gives you the space to actually understand what it meant for those who went through it and what it means for you um, to have been alongside it um, with relatively less harm. And when a community can do both of those things at once and then all the conversations that happen within families and within audience members on the train and cars and buses and stuff on the way home um, is the beginning of a pathway to reconciliation. And um, I say that confidently now with County Cracking, it was a, um, it was a, it was a lottery. It was my hope. It was a gamble in the dark, (laughs) Um, but it really did happen. It genuinely happened. And it happened again when we took the show to the UK this August. Um, And I can see what, Jungle on the Sea has done to my, the community members who've come and sat on rehearsals and who, who are in the show and the cast, and I can see that it will again be that space for the audience that comes. Um, and I think for those who aren't Sri Lankan, there's so many communities that have undergone similar things in their own experiences from around the world, and so many of them come to Australia to settle here precisely because of that. And I think to be able to, for that experience to be portrayed as um, 
ordinary human lives um, and people doing what they can to hold their dignity in the face of all of that is um, the portrayal we want to see of those things rather than really helpless, usually brown people, kind of at the forces of history in 30-second news graphs, you know. It allows us to unpack all of that and see, kind of dissolve um, the fabricated division between us and them. Kind of off the backs of Counting and Cracking and upon the release of The Jungle and the Sea, it can be quite rare to bridge the gaps between the communities that we're from and the art that we want to make. And there's a restlessness that emerges in our diasporic art making. What has been the feeling of having masses of Sri Lankan communities bear witness to a very vulnerable piece of theatre like this? I mean, with Counting and Cracking, I was so focused on what the effects would be like on the community itself. You know, I was terrified people would walk out. I was terrified of sowing more division. Um, so I was really focused on that task of unity and reconciliation and, and, and through, through a kind of gentle truth-telling. And what was a real surprise to us was how much other Australians embrace the story. And um, every night, all these people who weren't Sri Lankan were giving standing ovations and it sold out. And um, I had these amazing conversations with people, Sri Lankans every night, and they were like, I don't understand why other people are so interested in this show. <laughs> and um, over the course of that season with County Cracking, I came to realise that um, uh, this was a radical act of belonging because so many migrant communities are used to waging their full lives in private, you know, like their cultural traditions, the stories they tell, the media they consume. It's all happens in the home and public life is where they assimilate. <laughs> public life is where they put on a mask and kind of fit in. And um, kind of putting these kind of stories up in a mainstream context means we're dissolving that boundary and we're saying, no, this is how we are and we're doing it in public, we're doing it out of the home. So that public vulnerability felt like real belonging. And um, without that, we wouldn't be ready for Jungle of the Sea. Like now that my community's been through that, I think we're moving into a more difficult period of our history with Jungle and the Sea, um, but we're ready for it. Um, it's more difficult because it's more recent, um, the period it covers, but we're ready for it because... Um, we have proved that um, art has a value, <laughs> that diaspora have a value, um, and it's a relationship of trust but also one in which the audience, I hope, feel that they can say what they want to say in response and I will adapt as well. Um, and so it's, it's a truly kind of um, codependent relationship <laughs> where one affects the other, um, and I really hope that, our foundations we built with County and Cracking um, kind of only increase with Jungle and the Sea into this more difficult territory around a family who lives through the war um, and really looks at what kind of country Sri Lanka can be after a war um, and looks at what role um, diaspora and Australians have to play in that.
That is all for Race Matters this week. I'm Sada Khan. I'm Daniel Sargas. Thank you to Shakti for taking the time to speak to Race Matters about this new work, The Jungle and the Sea, and to Sharika Hilladin for producing the piece. The play opens this week in Sydney until December 18. We'll link ticket details in our show notes. You can listen back to episodes of Race Matters at fbiradio.com forward slash race matters. 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 Race matters.